0: tonight and my thoughts are disorganized i couldn't think of what to to discuss really so i want to just maybe go through what's going on to try and understand what's happening physically historically and maybe a couple of meditations um before we call it a night For those who are at the Bible studies, forgive the repetition if you've heard some of this before, but it's important for understanding the evening. As we can see here, there's been, we started off the night with the Lord's farewell, which we'll return to at the end. But the Lord's mission on earth was coming to a close. And as he said, the hour of darkness has taken hold to understand the characters at work, we have to look a little bit at the history of, of what's going on. We know that when God had gathered to himself the people through Abraham, they became a nation, and their, their their king, their leader, was the Lord Jehovah, God. And they would hear the voice of God first directly, and then when they feared that, it was through the prophets, right? When Moses came down, they said, you know what, we don't want to deal with God. He's too scary. We would rather that you speak to God and, and and we'll hear him through you. The Lord complied. And so the prophets became the mouthpiece of God. The prophets and the judges. So at one point it came that the Lord would rule the people through the judges. And the judges acted like prophets. They would discern the word of God and they would teach the people. But the people of God over time said, well, we don't like this arrangement. We like what everyone else has. They have a king. Could we please have a king? And one of the prophets, Samuel, said to them, do you know what you're asking for? Like you're, you're basically saying, let's remove God as our king and put in a human in their place. And God rebuked Samuel and says, let them have their king. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Let them have the king. Just ask them to remain faithful. To the covenant, but they weren't faithful to the covenant, and that's what we've been reading about all week long. All the prophecies that we read, and all of these warnings, and all of these, these, these frustrations, and groanings, and laments, and pleas, and cries, and romancing, and all the things that we've been discussing for the last four days. That was the period of the kings, where they were back and forth, back and forth. And they rarely were able to keep themselves clean for a day, and so the Lord withheld Himself from him, from them. And they went into exile, where they, of course, when things were tough, began to remember the Lord their God. And it says, "And in those days they cried out to the Lord." And we read, and we'll read more about it, Joyous Saturday, of Daniel and the three children, and, and, and the plight when they were there. And so the Lord raised up Ezra and Nehemiah. And allowed the people of God to return to Israel. But the people of Israel went back thinking that this is still to be a kingdom. They still weren't as interested in the Lord God himself. And so they reestablished the kingdom and they rebuilt the temple. And after the Babylonians came the Persians, and after the Persians came the Greeks, and all of these kingdoms occupied Judea, which is confusing to them because they thought that they had been liberated, but there also was no prophet rising up among them. And so during the Greek period, there was a period where the Hasmoneans ruled, where there was the Seleucids, which were part of the Persian kingdom, the one of the, the inheritors of Alexander the Great, who desecrated the temple and set up abominations. And so the Jews rebelled against this and they overtook the temple. And then the Greeks, the Greeks had been trying to Hellenize people. And so among the Jews, there was a big internal conflict. There were Jews who were Hellenized, Jews that were friendly to the Greeks and their culture and their philosophies, and others that weren't. And so when the temple was defiled, it was seen as the epitome of this conflict, right? And so the Hasmoneans, which the Jewish side, they rebelled, they took over the temple. And within 20 years, the Maccabees, a family of the Maccabee family, successfully overthrew the Greeks from Judea. And they, uh, they brought in an 80-year period of Jewish political independence in Jerusalem until the Romans took over. And so there's a region with those that were willing to help Rome that remained like a, a an, an adopted state or what's called a client state. And so Rome allowed them to govern, belong to Rome, but Rome allowed them to govern. And with the understanding that they belong to Rome, it's almost something similar to the way the Commonwealth works. That even though we have a prime minister, we technically are still a part of the British And so, there became a region that Herod the Great, who helped the Romans, was given to him. Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered the kids. Now, I mean, we religiously don't like Herod very much for what he did, but by political standards, Herod was great. Herod ruled for a long time. Herod built aqueducts. He built temples, stadiums, cities. He he was, he was a good secular ruler. And Rome awarded him for that and allowed him to continue his reign. So there's a part of Judea that belonged to Rome directly, which was governed by a prefect, which in the days of our Lord was Pontius Pilate. and He was there from 26 to 36. He didn't last very long after our Lord was murdered. And there was a region that was belonging to the Jews. Jerusalem proper, the temple, was under Pilate's domain why does this matter it matters because the jews in that domain were not allowed to exercise the death penalty even if their law called for it in order for the jews to be able to slay someone it was required that they go through roman avenues that is going to play a big role in these trials that we're looking at at the same time you have the jews who think when the Messiah comes, he will get rid of our Roman occupiers. We'll go back to this because Maccabees, whatever they did, has now failed, right? And so this is the mindset that they're coming in from. But there is a bigger sellout. The the Jewish nation was in shambles. First of all, like as we said, there's not been a prophet for 400 years. But there is a major sellout. In the year 6 AD, Rome started appointing high priests. So we've said before in the Bible study, this is the equivalent of the government of Egypt selecting who will be the Pope. And so those who are in the leadership, by default, on some level, are either Rome-friendly or bowing to Rome, because the source of their power was Rome, not from God. And that's why there's a whole group that just divorced themselves altogether from, from them, the Essenes. And they went off, they're kind of like the, the Mennonites of old, right? Where they said, we reject this, we reject the world, we think this is all awful. We don't believe that this high priest is from God. We're the pure. We are going to go um, and isolate ourselves until, until the real Messiah comes and reestablishes the real high priesthood. So they were very much in shambles. The Romans cared very much about this tiny piece of land called Judea, not because of anything it produced, but because of the harbors and because of its land link to the east, to a whole group of people that Rome feared. Because they were the only threat to them, the Persians in the east. And they were also a gateway to the ports to Egypt where Rome was receiving a lot of its harvest and grain and rice from. So there's a lot at play here and it does matter. It's not just for the sake of knowing history. It matters because the peace of that region matters. And so the Pax Romana, the Roman peace was established with Judea and said, we will allow you to function. We will allow you to function. If you keep yourselves obedient to the law you don't cause a riot. You don't try and rebel, because if we wish, we could and we can and we will completely annihilate you. And they could. Rome could, and eventually they did, as the Lord prophesied. Eventually they did. And so all of this is in the inner workings. that's why Caiaphas, just yesterday in the readings, accidentally prophesied about Christ, when they said Look, everyone's running after them. What are we going to do earlier this week? And Caiaphas said, you know what? It's better that one person, an innocent person, die for all of the people. He wasn't looking at Christ as innocent in terms of his claims. He was saying that, well, you know what? If the whole world has gotten mad because they're following him, we might get annihilated, and our nation and our custom and our temple will die. This is not a people who has confidence in God. As a matter of fact they had become secular because of that very issue. Because one of the things that had led to the results of the Maccabees was that they were going to be attacked on a Sabbath day. And the people of God said, we're not gonna fight on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is holy and our God will protect us. And so they refused to fight on the Sabbath and they were murdered. And so they said, Well, clearly we've got to take our security into our own hands. And so already the fundamental nature of this was no longer a people surrounding around God. Even again after the even after the the captivity, even after the release, you'd think that they would have learned the lesson, they haven't. And they haven't heard God speak to them in four hundred years. And as a matter of fact, God had stopped speaking to them because what was also absent from the Jews during this time was the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, the Throne. And it's from there that God would speak to them. It was called the Dubar, the Logos in Greek, Dubar in Hebrew, meaning the speech, the commanding, the word, the logic, the intellect. And this had been gone. This had disappeared. It was not present in the Second Temple. And so they were in complete and utter poverty and yet acting religious. And the temple which had ritual religion was just that ritual religion. People acted like they cared. The priests, as we see, don't care about justice. All the readings we've read throughout the week, I'm not gonna re go through them, are condemning the priests, saying, What is this this, is, this this is not my this is not religion, this is not belief, this is not leadership, this is not teaching. The people couldn't care less for me because of you, we read in the readings. And so the state of this was darkness. And the temple, the temple which was supposed to be the source of light, was empty and it had become the source of darkness. And instead of light pervading through the world from the dubar, from the holy place, from the holy of holies, from the temple, what pervaded from the most holy place on the earth up to date at that time was darkness was death, was rebellion. And so on this night, everything goes wrong. You have the Jews coming in to arrest the Lord, and they bring a whole host of people. They have brought in hundreds of soldiers to arrest the Lord. And the Lord... The Lord just looks at them and said, who do you want? They don't even know who he is. He said, we want, we want Jesus. And then he utters the divine words, I am, is he, pointing at himself. I am the I am. I'm openly declaring that I'm God. And they fall to their feet because he has said the name of God. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't that they were struck by some power that knocked them on their feet. No, they, they bowed because of what he said. No one recognized their creator. The disciples who had just attended this farewell speech, who said we would never betray you, they had just said, We know who you are now, Lord. Now you speak plainly. And our Lord looked at them and he asked them, Do you do you really get it? Because only in a few hours all of you will scatter. And in spite of knowing that he said this, they scattered. They really, really scattered. We see Peter trying to be manly Peter, and he's not a man at all tonight. Forgive me, Saint Peter. But he's not—he's not a man on this night at all. He thought he was a man when he took the sword, right? When he chops off Malchus's ear. But the real man was Christ, who turned around and said, "No, that's not how we do things." And in the middle of his own arrest, heals a man coming to arrest him. And you'd think that Peter, having witnessed that, would have, would have maybe thought about his actions, but he didn't. Peter, within not even an hour of this event, is vehemently denying and cursing and swearing that he doesn't know Christ. Luke gives us that really sad moment, right? St. Luke tells us that there's this moment where after he's made his third denial, Christ just looks at him. And then we see this trial that's going on that makes absolutely no sense where the Son of God is on trial, who is God. And they first go to Annas's house because he's the real high priest. Because as we said, the Lord, we said that the government in Romans, They've appointed high priest. So for some reason, Annas had been removed because a high priest is supposed to be high priest for life. And Annas is the is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So it's he's the real head of the house. And so that's why instead of going straight to the real "quote unquote" high priest house, Caiaphas, they went to the actual real one, Annas, because he calls the shots. And it's amazing because they sent him to be arrested after Judas. Has greeted him with a kiss. Right, that's why we're not kissing. Is that he used this friendly, loving, kind gesture to say, "I'll show you who he is." But that aside, if they've arrested him, you'd think there's a charge. But it's apparent in this trial that they hadn't even formulated their charge yet, because they're going through a bunch of witnesses and they're saying we don't. None of them are agreeing. They're not finding out what exactly is it that we're supposed to say he's guilty of the only thing they could kind of get from anybody to agree on because the law says that two or three witnesses have to agree on the story so they bring them in one by one and they're not agreeing the only thing that they're able to get something out of is this whole destroy the temple thing which they've taken out of context but no problem but they you can tell they don't feel that it's enough and so they're blasting our Lord did you did you did you did you and the Lord is silent. He's silent because the Lord has become the sin offering of the people. Like the lamb brought to the slaughter is silent, so our Lord is silent. But I'm not sure that we always understand what the silence meant. It wasn't it wasn't a silence of guilt. It wasn't a silence of weakness. The silence that he's having is the accepting of the condemnation. The silence of accepting the judgment on himself. When the person came to confess their sin, they put their hand on the lamb and said, I have done this sin. The lamb didn't open its mouth. The lamb just took the judgment. I mean, if the lamb could speak, it might have said something. But the lamb didn't say anything. And so the lamb just takes the judgment and it is slaughtered. And that is what our Lord was doing. That is why he was silent. So that he could become sin. This is what it means when we say our Lord became sin and our Lord became curse. Because in receiving the iniquities of the people. All these things that they're accusing of him of deserve death penalty. They said you blasphemed. They said you lied. You broke the Sabbath. You did this, you did that, you did that. These are all things that humanity was guilty of. Everything that they're accusing Christ of, humanity starting with Adam and Eve. Humanity was guilty. And that is why our Lord kept silent. So we will say, well, how come he spoke at one point? He spoke because he wasn't receiving a sin when he spoke. He was being asked a question, who are you? The same question that we've been talking about all week long. Who are you? Are you the Son of Man, and they knew in what context they meant it, because they would charge him with blasphemy. And to this the Lord responds with truth, because he can't help but answer truth because he is truth. I am, he said, I am, and you have said it. And now they got the judgment that they were starving for. Now they could call him guilty, and now they could call for the death penalty which is what they wanted they wanted because as we said in the last couple of nights they had been shamed they had been made out to be little and small to lose their dignity this was their moment for vengeance this was their moment for blood and you see the complete upside downness of the world where when he when he says to the high priest because he answers the high priest to show him, "I'm not here weakness." And he says, "Why are you asking me? I preached openly. You can ask anyone who listened. Actually, most of you were there. So why don't you ask them what did I say? If you have an accusation, bring it. as opposed to why are you just bringing me in to a re-? imagine somebody being brought into a trial and saying so tell us what you did. And he's like, well, you're the ones accusing me. You you tell me. You tell me what I did. And the servant of the high priest slaps him. He says, do you know who you're talking to? And our Lord didn't even defend himself there to say, do you know who you're talking to? But he looks at the man, St. Cyril of Alexandria, if I'm not mistaken, it was him, personalized it and says, it "It seems as though Christ knew the man who slapped him, that he was somebody who had been present at the teachings, and says to him, have I said something actually wrong? Because if I have, then say it. But if I haven't said something wrong, can you please tell me why you're slapping me why are you beating me and there's no answer but then the shaming of our lord begins then they revile him then they slap him then they beat him then they make fun of him then they say prophesy and we'll see that this is going to go to the whole night and early into the morning so by the time that he comes before pilate he hasn't ate or drank for at least 12 or 15 hours And by the time he's crucified, it's been almost 24 hours of complete and utter humiliation. So he's been betrayed by the priests. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been betrayed by the apostles. He's been betrayed by those in the marketplace. He'll be betrayed by the rulers, both by Pilate and Herod, as we'll see in the morning. They've abused their power and they don't know their true king. Betrayed by those in the temple who are mocking him, slapping him, looking for entertainment on how to press his weakness. And betrayed by the very priests, the ones who theoretically are those who serve him. These are the people that he's appointed to safeguard the people, to teach and to instruct, to offer sacrifice. And that's, that's their trial. That's their justice. But our Lord knew that that was all going to happen. It's not what He was interested in. Our Lord knew all that was going to happen, and so He just kind of accepts it. Because what He wanted to say to them, He said to them oh, earlier. When He gave them His farewell instructions and took them aside into a garden. And how appropriate, how very appropriate that these words were in the garden. Because our Lord is undoing what Adam did. Our Lord goes to the garden where it all began. Goes back, the gospel of John is like a new Genesis. And so he returns back to creation, which runs back to the garden. And he's with his friends and says, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave. And I'm asking you guys when I go to not lose the faith, to not lose hope, to not forget how I asked you to live. I'm going to leave. You're not going to see me. And after a little while, you'll see me. And they said, well, what do you mean? He's like, you'll, you'll understand. Because they weren't going to understand that he was going to die and that he was going to rise and they would see him again. And then he told them, but don't worry. I won't leave you orphans. And here he doesn't just mean that sentimentally orphans, once you became an orphan, there was a legal issue, right? There meant that you you had someone, you needed, you needed someone to vouch for you, or somebody to to legally take a claim for you. And that's why he used a legal term when he called the Holy Spirit, the advocate, saying he'll, he'll be yours, don't worry about it. And he tells them many things, I won't go into all of it, That would be more of a study for the Bible study. But he says to them, what I'm begging from you is to love each other. What I'm begging from you is to give yourselves to another, to look at what I have done and to do the same. No servant is greater than his master. I know they're going to treat you badly. I know that they're going to hate you. I know that they're going to look at you like you're terrible. I know because they're already doing it to me. And so they will do it to you. There's no greater love than this, than that one lays his life down for his friends. That is what he was about to do. And then he asked them to join him in prayer, and they can't. They fall asleep most of us and he says to his father Lord my father I accept this cup this this mission that I said yes to before the foundation of the world I still say yes I will not I will not I will not be unfaithful to my people because this whole world is my people those who came to arrest me are my people these disciples of yours these special friends of mine they're my people and your people the roman governor and the romans and the pagans and the gentiles they are my people The Jews, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they're my people. All of them are my people. And what's mine is mine because it's yours, Father. Because what's yours is mine, and mine is yours. And of course we will not forsake them. It is your will that they might not perish. It is your will that they be united with us. I am here to enact your will, and so I, as man, enacted by my own volition, I lay me down for these, and I beg of you, O Father, preserve them, keep them one. Why one? Because we are one. What is oneness? The complete emptying of oneself for another. And as the Trinity lives, so ought we to live in a complete emptying for one another. But he had come unto his own, and his own received him not. And so now we see the power of darkness, truly. This is the hour for the Prince of this world. This is the reenactment of Eden. Eden, the place of God, where God and man dwelt together, here was God again. Gethsemane, the place familiar to Christ. That's why Judas used it. He said that's where he usually goes. And Adam was formed as an earthly man in that garden. God became an earthly man in the garden in order to renew the spiritual man. And Adam, who was in the garden and hid himself, ran away from God and said that he was ashamed. Our Lord presented himself to the father and hid not and submitted himself. Adam's sin brought us into darkness. Our Lord in Gethsemane became the light of the darkness. Adam needed to be called by God. Christ tells them who he is. The garden of Eden was closed through Adam, but through this new Adam paradise was opened. Adam in the garden blamed his wife. His wife blamed the serpent. Christ justified the guilty in the garden, the centurion who Peter attacked. Adam blasphemed God. And Christ was blasphemed. Adam was compelled to die, but Christ voluntarily died. And as we'll see tomorrow, Adam brought death, and Christ brought life. And so this is the power of darkness. The same temptation of the garden is what was taking root in the whole world that night. In the garden, the serpent came saying, Don't you want to be like God? Are you going to listen to what God says? No, 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 you shouldn't. What God wants from you is ridiculous. What God wants is for you to be ignorant. And He fooled them and mocked them and made them to seek after royalty, to seek after pomp, to seek after knowledge, to seek after their own minds. And this is what the devil was working that night. All were working to kill Christ for the same reason. They all wanted their own way. None of them wanted God. And so the devil was delirious with joy because the devil was still in utter confusion. The devil had no idea what was going on. Because if he did, he would have with all his strength tried to stop it. So I leave you with this to think about. Even though the Lord said who he is, they didn't get it. But as we read multiple times in the readings this week, Christ said, when the son of man is lifted up, then you will know who he is. And so we await an expectation tomorrow to see As St. John called the moment of glory, the glorification of our Lord exalted on the cross to see what the Lord has in store, let us all reflect on whether or not we are living Christ's final prayer, whether we really live in love and unity, or if rather we are more resembling the characters of this night and different days. And if we are, may we repent to ourselves, and rather than fleeing him tonight tomorrow, join him at the cross with his mother, and with John and with Mary, and proclaim with glory that he is our God. To him be glory, honor, majesty, and might now and always, and unto the age of all ages. Amen.